What are we waiting for? Action! Let me have your attention for a moment. Let's talk about something important. Now, we're talking business. Let's talk business. Oh, you guys like to tell jokes and giggle and kid around, huh? I'm talking about form. I'm talking about content. I'm talking about interrelationships. I'm talking about God, the devil, hell, heaven. It's too cerebral. We're trying to make a movie here, not a film. We have a new category this year. Best film ever made by a human being. These are big movies, think about big men in tights. You should have got us. Who are you working for? The Knutsons. Who, who the f are the Knutsons? We like movies! Hello, everybody. This is We Like Movies, your favorite semi monthly pro movie pop culture podcast. Back from COVID hibernation, uh, just reeling off podcasts week after week now that we're hitting the holidays. Um, I'm here from Seattle, Washington. I got my friend Matthew Knutson from LA joining us. Special guest, Brian Borini. Uh, Matt, how are you doing? I'm doing well. It is, uh, it's balmy down here in the Southland. It's, it was about 79 degrees today, so Rub it happy in. holidays. It's absolutely shitty here. <laughs> so I, I think I'll split the difference here, and it's about... 52 degrees and a little overcast so pretty much 11 months of the year in the Bay Area, right <laughs> you, you guys you guys are almost as consistent as la just right smack dab in the middle of the thermometer yeah well gentlemen uh it's great to see you both we are here to celebrate the 20th anniversary of a movie that's near and dear to all our hearts uh steven soderbergh's 2000 epic crime drug drama traffic Matt, would you like to give a little background on your background with this movie? Yeah, I will uh, attempt to not burst into tears here because uh, this is definitely uh, one of my favorite films of all time, is in my top 10 films of all time. I'll just go ahead and say it. And so I've been preparing my entire life, I've been preparing for the last 20 years to talk about this movie, as a matter of fact. There is a filmmaker who's very, very near and dear to my heart. And when I think about my sort of like ride or die American filmmakers, um, there's really just one name that rises above the fray. And, you know, on certain days I'll be a Nolan guy, on certain days maybe I'll be a PTA guy, on certain days I'll be a David Fincher guy. You know, I'm a simple man, heterosexual white guy from the suburbs of the Pacific Northwest, so of course I would like all these filmmakers. Um, you know, obviously I had, have had my love affair with, with, with Woody Allen. That sounds a little weird saying it like that, but... You know, you know it's, it's very complicated what to talk about Woody out? Allen and mixed company nowadays. He's obviously a very important American filmmaker for me. But I always go back to this one guy. You know, I, I may have dalliances with other filmmakers. I may cheat on this guy with other filmmakers. I may play the field. But I'm always going to go home to this guy. Pretty much have felt this way ever since December 26th. 2000, uh, which is when I first saw Traffic in a sneak preview screening. I knew who Steven Soderbergh was. I had obviously seen Sex, Lies, and Videotape. I had seen um, Out of Sight, although not in the theater. And I think I had seen maybe King of the Hill by that point. So I knew who he was. I knew who he was. I knew he was important. I knew he was the youngest guy to ever win uh, the Palme d'Or at Cannes. I knew he was sort of like the wunderkind of the Sundance movement. But I hadn't really been keeping up with much of his stuff. I hadn't seen Aaron Brockovich, uh, you know, by this point, for example. My Aunt Lisa, who used to call into um, radio stations to try to get, like, free tickets to Mariner games and stuff, she was one of these people who just, like, every morning she'd be listening to the radio and she would call in and, you know, be caller nine or whatever. So one day she's calling in and they're going to give away free tickets to a sneak preview screening of this new Steven Soderbergh movie that's going to do a sneak preview in Seattle at the old Uptown Theater on Queen Anne, Oscar. That's your neck of the woods. Oh, yeah. Calls in. She wins the tickets. She can't use them. She gives them to me. I take my friend... 
uh, David Schmidt, who uh, Oscar and I went to high school with. And uh, we go up to the Uptown and we see this movie we know very little about, except for the fact that it's directed by Steven Soderbergh. We sit there for two and a half hours. We walk outside the theater afterwards. I'm sure it was raining. It was December in Seattle. And David's like, that was pretty good. That was pretty interesting. And I look over and I'm like, I think that was the best film I've ever seen up to this point in my life. I think this is the filmmaker I want to marry. Like I, he told me everything about cinema that I've ever, things that I can't put into words about cinema. He just sort of elucidated for me with this extraordinary film. And I just hitched my wagon to his star on that night. And I've sort of never really looked back. And he's ebbed and he's flowed and he's had his an incredible journey since then. And he's made some extraordinary movies since. He's made some pretty bad movies since. I don't know if he's ever made a better movie since. But I still feel feel pretty good about dedicating myself to Steven Soderbergh in that way because he is wholly unique in the canon of uh, American filmmakers. And there's nobody like him. There's nobody who does what he does. And there's nobody who's been able to sort of like ride the wave of the industry and always be on the vanguard over the course of the last 20 years. I was a little bit worried about revisiting this film because I haven't seen it in probably maybe four or five years. And, you know, I always think of it as a masterpiece. I always think of it as one of my favorite films. And I'm very, very happy to report that I still think it's a masterpiece. It's still one of my top 10 favorite films and it held up very, very well. All right, Brian, that's a lot to uh, follow up. (laughs) (laughs) what's what's your background i uh, i saw this in theaters as well um i i loved it i think i saw this and snatched like back to back like the same month or something like that yeah and i just remember and in iowa and i was in iowa and you know I'm, i'm very much a mainstream like straight you know straight down the middle of the road type of guy i like the oscar movies i am not an art house or documentary or foreign film kind of guy so this to me was like very prestigious in that it you know, had the the multiple narratives that sort of weren't tied together, not in like a um, cute or cheeky way, the way Guy Ritchie does or the way Quentin Tarantino way, might just sort of like painting a realistic portrait of it. And that to me felt like, and that still is like my, my favorite style of film. I mean, I'm a sucker for even like movies that are sloppy or sort of messy, like Babel or something like that. Like, I just love that style. Same as Knutson saw that. And I was like, this movie is just fantastic. It's, I, I watched it again, you know, to prepare for this. And what's amazing is how funny it is. I mean, all the stuff with Guzman and Don Cheadle, and maybe it's because I've seen the movie a hundred times and oftentimes with Matt, maybe at two in the morning, maybe over a couple drinks and whatnot. So it's it's extremely entertaining. It's Cohen's, P.T. Anderson, there's a few folks that can make these type of movies that are like, you're not bored for a single minute of it. It has a very powerful message. It's extraordinarily well acted. You know, when I first saw it, I thought, hey, this is a cool movie. I would not have considered it, you know, my top 20 movies of all time. And then I had the pleasure of living with Matt Knudsen uh, at a time when I believe we had two traffic posters on the wall. And in fact, I see it here. I don't know if you got that. <laughs> you put that up special for this podcast. <laughs> it's been there since I moved in. It's, it's it's signed by the cast as well. Just just saying, no big deal. Miguel Ferrar, you get you get Ferrar on there. <laughs> so uh, anyway, just to sum it up, yeah, I loved the movie when I first saw it. Lived with Matt and got sort of the um, double education, the second education on it, and you know have now seen it probably twenty times. Can quote every minute of it, and yeah, it's, it's easily in my top ten all time movies. Uh, James Brolin signature. <laughs> <laughs> oh, James, uh, I don't know about that. Matt, <laughs> sit down and write two letters, all right? <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Oh, what a speech. I don't think I was 
fully aware of who Soderbergh was. I clearly had, you know, I, I knew out of sight, had seen out of sight. I, I saw Aaron Brockovich, didn't really think too much of that. Um, but for whatever reason back in that day, that was my, like, my my birth as a cinephile during that time. I, I had a car, finally, and I had any cool news. And I had, I was living in Seattle, so I knew there were things to see and I could go alone and see him. And traffic was right up my alley and I didn't have anything else to do. And I think I saw it three, four, five times in theaters when it came out. I fucking loved it. And I was one of those annoying guys who, if you had talked to me during those three months leading up to the Oscars, I would tell you that it's a much better movie than Gladiator. And it was bullshit what was happening. So yeah, I, I was a huge fan of this movie. And for whatever reason, I don't think I'd rewatched it in 10, 12, 15 years maybe. It was one of those things where I was, when you brought this up, Matt, I was very worried about it because I, I've had this experience with some movies where stuff I liked when I was a teenager and stuff I was obsessed with turns out to, uh, you know, not really pass muster. You know, the war on drugs, just the, the theme of this movie is something I feel like I'm well versed in right now compared to where I was in the year 2000. So I was worried that I would feel like, you know, the storylines were reductive or thematically it wouldn't pass muster. But I will say not only is it way more fast-paced than I, I would have predicted. This movie just chugs along at, you know, two and a half hours. It's not preachy at all. It paints a great picture, realistically, I feel like, of the drug war, the futility of it all. I, I came out of this movie just watching on a weekday night by myself, just absolutely pumped. I was so stoked about it, and thanks for making me watch this again, Matt. I love it. I, I wanted to talk to you guys about this because I feel like this movie has a weird uh, reputation. I feel like this movie has very little legacy. And I think that might be an interesting place to start. Besides the sepia toning of Mexico. Yes. Right, yeah. That's its lasting <laughs> legacy for the sure. Color, yeah, the color palette is something we can get into for sure. I didn't notice that. Is there a different tone in Mexico? <laughs> you may need to calibrate your screen. So I was listening listening to the uh, Big Picture podcast recently, and they were talking about Soderbergh's new film, um, Let Them All Talk, Meryl Streep, HBO Max movie, and they decided they wanted to rank all the Soderbergh stuff as, as they are wont to do. And I was very just taken aback when they ranked traffic amongst his lower uh, the lower half of his oeuvre. It's made 30 plus films over the last 30 plus years, and uh, they just they did not have very nice things to say about it. They I just feel like nobody really talks about this film anymore, and I don't really know what people think about it. It's the film he obviously won his Oscar for, which I think is very significant. But why do we not talk about this movie more often? Why do people not revisit this? Why why is this not like, you know, Boogie Nights or Magnolia or Out of Sight? You know, all these other like late 90s, early 2000 things from these auteurs that I feel like we revisit so much more often than this one. I mean, this one's always very near and dear to my heart. I'm biased. Why, why are more people not into revisiting traffic? I, I think also, I mean, it has the like Dio realism style about it where it's not it's not a stylized piece like a like. Boogie Nights or, or, you know, any of the Coen Brothers movies where it has this distinct, you know, you can watch a minute of those movies and you can tell what it is. This does, uh, you know, because of the tones, the color tones, it feels like, um, what's the guy who does Captain Phillips in United 93? Greengrass. Greengrass. Yeah. Like, like that, like that whole style, I feel like in general is not appreciated. Like what I was saying, the things that feel like they're, they're almost documentary or that they're very, um, they're very, they're filmed in a realism style. I don't know that people care about, like, I don't know that that's a popular style and that sort of has moved film culture, the cinematic culture, that that's like a, you know, a trend. Traffic, I feel like, is the peak of that or maybe even like a, a, um, an early sort of 
uh, influence on that style of film, mm-hmm. but it's not, it's not popular. It's not like you don't see a ton of movies that are made like that. And they're not like Oscar winners typically. And he's kind of moved away from this as well. Like he's moved into a more sort mm-hmm. of like formalist thing. Like he, now it's very kind of, well, I don't want to say it's rare to see Steven, so- Steven Soderbergh uh, do stuff handheld nowadays. Cause that's probably a little bit generic, uh, uh, reductive to say, but just watching something like let them all talk recently, like he loves to lock that camera off and just let people cook nowadays, you know, like he's gotten much more in, to kind of this sort of formalist aesthetic. And he's not the sort of like kind of run and gun experimental guy uh, that he was back around. Peter Andrews. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's it's very important to note that this is the first film that he has cinematography credit on, or at least his pseudonym, Peter Andrews. And I was just reading before we we hopped on here on the Wikipedia page about how he decided that this was the kind of film where he he really just needed to get closer to the actors. And there was no way to get closer to the actors than to get behind the camera. He has shot every single thing that he has directed ever since. I mean, he's a true hyphenate. Peter Andrews, the cinematographer, and he's also Marianne Bernard, his own editor nowadays. I, I wonder if part of it, because I was asking myself the same thing um, about why isn't this movie more well-regarded or even talked about, J- just from my own sort of reluctance to revisit the movie, I wonder if people just with the subject matter think it's going to be kind of homework to watch the movie. They don't think it's going to be an easy watch, so they just simply don't watch it. But also, he could be a victim of his own sort of prolificness right there are just so many Soderbergh movies at this point if people were to say you know what's what's the big quintessential Soderbergh movie I don't know what you would say because he's dabbled in different genres and different styles of filmmaking and he just has so many movies and also it didn't really it didn't launch anybody's career right it's uh the cast is so varied there's no star I don't know but it's an interesting question because I could see a world where this is regarded as you know one of the one of this century's masterpieces. In the lists of the best movies of the 21st century, and a lot of those lists have come out this year, I don't think I saw Traffic once on anything. I think a big part of it, like you were just saying, Oscar, is that it's very much a 20th century movie. It's pre-9-11, clearly. They talk about all this stuff on the border, and their main concern is drugs. You know, they don't talk about undocumented citizens or illegal immigration or anything like that. So it's not so sort of contemporary political uh, narrative. And it just the war on drugs in general is not when was the last time that was in the culture that people talked about that? I mean, it sort of faded uh, in the post 9-11 sort of they, they mentioned NAFTA in the movie when Miguel Ferrer's like NAFTA makes it easy. Like when was the last time somebody talked about NAFTA? 20 years ago, it was a lot more subversive to be like the war on drugs is completely futile. Exactly. <laughs> and now everyone agrees that that's the case right exactly so. yeah we and we've pivoted we've pivoted into like sicario and stuff now right like we've already sort of like given up and now we're like okay well now let's get in there into juarez and actually like you know <laughs> you know crack some skulls and try to fuck shit up or uh, i was thinking about a show called zero 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 which i watched earlier this year which is an amazon show it, it's it's kind of it's actually sort of similar to traffic in that it's about the source of the drugs it's about the tra- uh, transportation of the drugs and it's about the destination of the drugs so it's like the source in mexico the transportation across the Atlantic and then the destination in Italy actually so it's an interesting it's an interesting like 10-part series on Amazon Prime I would recommend people check it out but yes I think we've sort of accepted the futility of it all that in like like you said in 2000 was kind of novel or kind of subversive in a way like this was such a this this movie took such a such a candid look at this subject matter that everybody was like a little bit squeamish about right Especially if you start talking about kids from a nice neighborhood cutting lines of coke while their parents are out of town or whatever, or God forbid, going downtown to like buy drugs from black people. I mean, it, it, it felt. I mean, and maybe that's why this movie is is not as rewatchable for people because, like you said, maybe there is something that's a little more 
20th century about it. I bet somewhere on Reddit you could find a really long and convoluted theory that Benicio plays the same character in Sicario that he does. <laughs> That's what I was thinking when I was watching this. I was like, is this a prequel to Sicario? <laughs> yeah. Jesus Christ, I, did, I didn't even make the, the connection. Plus, James Brolin's son, Josh Brolin, is working for the DEA, <laughs> yeah. and his dad was the drug czar. Oh, my God. It's all connected. Nepotism and politics. That's what Sicario is about. <laughs> so let's, uh, let's, let's set the table here contextually, contextually a little bit to sort of like talk about why this movie was so important for Soderbergh at this point in his career. So like I said, he wins um, you know, the Palme d'Or. He gets Oscar nominated for Sex, Lies, and Videotape. He wins the prize at Sundance. He's off to the races. And then he basically wanders in the woods for a decade, right? Kafka, The Underneath, King of the Hill, Grey's Anatomy, Schizopolis, all movies that I think are really interesting, particularly those last two. But for all intents and purposes, he has he, he cannot find any, any footing as a mainstream filmmaker. And everybody is sort of coming to the conclusion that like, well, sounds like he was just a flash in the pan, Wunderkind. It looks like Sex, Lies, and Videotape was a bit of a fluke. This guy um, never really managed to uh, find his voice. So the, for all intents and purposes, the industry basically gives up on him. After Schizopolis, he basically just he gets a hired gun opportunity to direct this sort of mid-budget Elmore Leonard adaptation out of sight, which was sort of just thought of as like sort of this low-level follow-up to Get Shorty, I suppose. And George Clooney is not a movie star yet. Jennifer Lopez is certainly not a movie star yet. This is just Soderbergh proving to himself that he can make a studio film with up-and-coming actors. It was not a big smash hit, but critics love it. Scott Frank's, Scott Frank's screenplay gets nominated um, for an Oscar. People start to take notice of Soderbergh again, so he, he piggybacks off that and goes right into The Limey which is the film that I have always maintained is probably his masterpiece, or at least the most Soderbergh-y Soderbergh film. And I always kind of feel like he discovered a new gear, if, if, if we want to sort of craft a, a flimsy automotive metaphor. He discovers a new gear in Out of Sight. And then in The Limey, he drops the hammer into that gear. And then in Traffic, he like hits the gas and pops the clutch, right? And then if you want to take it even further in Ocean's Eleven, floors, floors the gas. So he goes from out of sight to the limey and makes incredible stylistic leaps. He sort of finds his voice. He wants to make traffic, but he cannot get the money together for it. He said he always wanted to make a movie about the drug trade, can't find the money, decides to pivot into a star-driven vehicle in Aaron Brockovich, which I think in a lot of ways is kind of a lost Soderbergh movie, but it's not insignificant that that movie was also nominated for Best Picture the same year as Traffic, and Soderbergh was nominated for Best Director for both of them, which had never happened before and has, hasn't happened since. Pivots into Aaron Brockovich. He proves he can make a star-driven, mainstream, crowd-pleasing movie, becomes a huge smash hit goes right off that set into traffic because now they finally have the money shoot traffic very fast 54 days uh, shooting schedule seven cities 135 speaking parts a 46 million dollar budget which actually sounds pretty high when you kind of think about it 46 million dollars still still a pretty decent uh, price tag gets it from uh, USA films which then becomes focus films which is a subsidiary of, of Universal so for all intents and purposes a universal movie Aaron Brockovich is a big smash hit Everybody anoints Julia Roberts as um, as the Oscar winner, basically, as soon as that movie comes out. And then, lo and behold, later that year, Traffic comes out, and that becomes a phenomenon for a whole list of different reasons. And we feel like this is, in addition to getting behind the camera, this is also him sort of making good on all the things that he's learning throughout, uh, I mean, throughout his entire career, but specifically throughout Out of Sight, The Limey, and Aaron Brockovich, and taking all that stuff, and taking this just new 
style that is wholly his own, but also knowing how to work with movie stars and knowing how to make a quote unquote mainstream film and knowing how to work with a studio budget and just takes all that stuff and just like pulls it all together and brings in this just sort of like unprecedented two and a half hour social drama about this subject matter that hadn't really been explored on this scale before. It was his year. Like I said, multiple Oscar nominations. He ends up winning for Traffic, of course, which I think is very, very deserved. And just watching this film again this afternoon, I'm like, this movie is so directed. And I mean that as a compliment. You know, like I just watch this movie and I'm like, God damn, every single frame of this movie is directed. And that's what I love so much about him is that like his fingerprints are on, on, on everything for good or for bad. He doesn't always nail it. He doesn't always hit it out of the park, but you can always see his fingerprints on his films. And maybe he is an auteur, even though he claims to not be one, or he claims to have never wanted to be one. Like he thinks of himself as a journeyman filmmaker who makes lots of different types of movies. But is he an auteur insofar as a Soderbergh film is always very, very recognizable? Or does he ever disappear into his films? I don't know. That's a good question. I mean, just looking at his filmography now, pretty crazy after this run he has of Out of Sight, Limey, Aaron Brockovich, Traffic, Ocean's Eleven. He kind of waffles the rest of his career between experimental you know, you got your Solaris's, you got your Chase. Side Effects is a weird movie, Laundromat, High Flying Bird, and then sort of movies that are mainstream but not really like Oscar Beatty type things. So like he's kind of stopped making that sweet spot for getting awards. I don't think he cares about that, which is probably why that's the case. But for whatever reason, his career culminates in this one-two punch of Brockovich and Traffic, and then he sort of has, he splinters himself almost the rest of his career. And I don't know, it, it's just interesting because he is, he seems like unique, he's very unique in that way where he just kind of does exactly what he wants to do. And, you know, th there's always the old, you know, one for them, one for me, but he seems to take that to sort of a crazy extreme. You know, he's so entertaining. His movies are insanely entertaining. It, to me, it's almost, it's, it's, I don't want to say tragic, that's too strong of a word, but the fact that he does make the the sort of weirder movies and he doesn't do as many out of sights in Ocean's Elevens. And, you know, I actually love Side Effects. I think Side Effects is a super interesting movie and it's kind of a neat, almost Hitchcockian story. And then there's uh, like Contagion, which I think of as sort of almost like, not certainly not a sequel, but like a sort of traffic version two, where it's like all these sort of different stories. It's filmed in a very realistic style. It has the sort of government bureaucracy part of it where, you know, you never see the president. The president is not a character in either of these movies, um, but mentioned and sort of evoked a lot. You know, I would give anything for him to step away from doing Unsane and some of these high flying bird and that are certainly interesting and entertaining in their own right, but just do more of these contagion, um, uh, Ocean's Eleven, traffic, you know, big, you know, spectacle movies. Like I said, I'm a mainstream, like down the middle of the road kind of guy. So those really speak to me, but I get that he has to, you know, get his rocks off and do his, you know, iPhone movies or whatever. I know it, it, it's crazy to me. Like when the, when it was announced that he was going to do a, a Panama papers movie, for instance, <laughs> right. I thought there was a chance that we'd have another sort of traffic on our hands, but he makes a lot of bizarre decisions. And then, I mean, it's not his script. I don't think, but I don't know. I mean, that's, that's quite a dud. But then, like I said, like I love, I love Contagion, right? I love mm -hmm. a lot of the stuff he's he's done since. But I'm I'm with you, Brian. I, I would like him to sort of. I, I, I it sounds cynical, but try to win Oscars. You know? Yeah, or win the box <laughs> office. Yeah, he has yeah. not he has not been Oscar nominated since he won one in in 2000. That's right? wild. Ocean's Eleven, which comes out in 2001, um, yeah, it comes out the year he wins his Oscar, is of course his biggest hit and probably will always be his biggest hit. So yeah, that run that run from Out of Sight to Ocean's Eleven is just unprecedented 
And I think once he realized that he could do that and like, all right, I did it. Won a fucking Oscar, made a huge hit with like a constellation of movie stars. Did it. Don't need to do that again. Already proved myself I could. Let's see what else we can do. And so now I'm going to like start Section 8 productions and I'm going to bring all my friends in and I'm going to help Clooney direct his movies and I'm going to bring, you know, Gregory Jacobs and Scott Burns and all my boys, you know, Christopher Nolan. Like he, go, he literally like picks Christopher Nolan out of Sundance after Memento and says, here, come to Warner Brothers, direct Insomnia, prove to them you can make a mainstream movie with movie stars. I mean, Christopher Nolan doesn't owe his career to Steven Soderbergh, but he does owe his relationship with Warner Brothers to Steven Soderbergh, which is fraught now for a number of reasons. And maybe he won't be with Warner Brothers for too much longer because <laughs> he continues to bite that hand that's been feeding him for a while for a number of reasons. That's for a different podcast. He just decides he wants to play jazz and he wants to shoot movies digitally and he wants to make Full Frontal. And then eventually he wants to start making movies on iPhone. <laughs> and then he wants to make, uh, he makes Full Frontal the same year as as, as um, Ocean's Eleven, I believe. And then um, he decides he wants to make TV shows like K Street, and then he does The Nick, you know, like he's, you know, and he'll do documentaries, and it's just insane how prolific he is, and it's insane the just, like, breadth and variety of his work. He, you know, he owns a brandy company now, like he imports brandy <laughs> from from Bolivia, which he discovered when they were making Che. I don't know, he's just, he's a, he's, a, he's a hero of mine, and he's an inspiration for a number of reasons, but he's also made a lot of movies I really haven't liked. Like, I didn't like... Um, let them all talk and I didn't like Unsane and I was kind of ambivalent about High Flying Bird and I didn't like Bubble you know like he's made I don't know if he's made as many movies that I haven't liked as I did but he certainly made a lot that I haven't liked but he just churns out so many of them that's why I kind of compare him to uh, Woody Allen in terms of prolificness he'll bang out two or three movies in a year which is just crazy so yeah so part of me maybe does wish he would slow down a little bit and focus a little bit more but that's just not the kind of filmmaker he is anymore this is the guy who made Ocean yeah. this is the guy who made Traffic and Aaron Brockovich in the same year so it's not like it's a new thing for him to be knocking multiple things out in, in the same 12 months yeah get back in your box Steven Soderbergh you idiot <laughs> <laughs> I mean he you probably have the mental capacity to do better work at that level of prolificness when you're a younger man and the fact that he keeps trying to do this. I, I mean, you know, we all see his like end of the year list where he meticulously has documented everything he's watched throughout the entire year too. And that's on top of uh, making all these things. So, I mean, Matt, I, I don't know if you have any insight into him personally, but is he kind of like a weird OCD guy? Like every, every time, every interview and everything, I've, he seems like a pretty low key dude, but I don't know. Yeah, I, I wish I had some insight. I worked for his company. I, I interned at his company one time, but I never met him because uh, we were based in Burbank and Soderbergh lives in New York. Clooney would come in every couple days. So I met him and I talked to Soderbergh one time on the phone when he called in. I Well, I didn't talk to him. I directed his call. But but I did hear his voice over the phone and I, and I got, you know, I got verklempt. I mean, he seems like a pretty down to earth dude from Baton Rouge. But so I really can't I can't speak to whether he's an OCD guy or not. But I was very inspired when I started reading his list to start doing my own. Uh, because I think it's a great it's a great exercise to do it that way. And I mean, people look forward to that list every single year and care about his perspective and care about the fact that he's watching the social network six times a year, but he's also watching below decks for months at a time or whatever. The fact that he's able to read so many books per year, the fact he's able to watch so many TV shows per year, the fact that he's able to make so many movies per year, it's just insane. It's drugs. He owns, well, he owns a brandy company, so it's not like he's sober. You know? <laughs> so, we know he's drinking brandy on occasion. His dedication to this sort of like boots on the ground filmmaking, the fact that he wanted to be his own camera operator for a number of reasons, not least of which is that he wanted to be able to shoot these things fast. Even going back to this period, he wanted to get stuff out as quickly as possible. He wanted to edit it as quickly as possible. He didn't 
have the ability to do that when he was shooting on film. Now that he's shooting on iPhones and red cameras, he can go and edit every single night when you rap and he can get this stuff out really, really quickly. That was the whole thing with K Street, right? K Street was this show where they wanted to be able to shoot it, edit it, and release it in the same week because they were talking about issues that were so topical. They wanted to be able to cover the kinds of issues that were very topical in Washington, D.C. that week. When you talk about him uh, not getting nominated again, I hadn't realized that or thought about that. That, that seems pretty crazy considering uh, how prolific he is. But one other thing I was thinking about is the actors are so good in his movies. Like He also gets such good performances. Obviously, Julie Roberts wins her Oscar for it. Benicio wins for this. Um, but I was even thinking, just watching it, so many people, you know, Albert Finney has a great little bit part. Michael Douglas is one of his best parts. There's so many characters. Has he had, Has he directed any actors or actresses to an Oscar or even a nomination? Since these movies? Not since Benicio, I don't believe. No, I'm, I'm looking I'm looking down right now. Yeah, that's the last one. Four people won Oscars for traffic. Steven, 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 and Benicio. Soderbergh, uh, uh, Mirioni, and uh, Gagan. And then and then Benicio, of course. But yes, no, uh, no, no one has been no one has been nominated for any of his films since. I mean, he really pivots into a lot of this genre stuff. Three Oceans movies. He does a good German, which is his sort of like Casablanca <laughs> uh, riff, yeah. which is it's a wacky movie. <laughs> Check it out. If uh, we were, we talked about it during. I have during you talked about it on the other one. He, he, I remember at the time that they use like 1940s cameras and they had to like Clooney or somebody talking about they had to have these giant blocks of ice to like cool them off for some insane technology. Like, cool, dude. Great. Just make a fucking Oceans movie. Like, come on, man. <laughs> also, we've been talking about all these other movies. We haven't talked about the Magic Mikes. Yeah. Did he do the sequel or just the first? He shot the sequel. Uh, I believe Gregory Jacobs, who was his uh, assistant director directed the sequel. Soderbergh shot it and edited it, I believe. And that is also one of the biggest hits of his career. So, you know, we talk about him sort of like pivoting into the smaller stuff that, 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 you know, tends to not be Oscar nominated and tends to not be big hits. But important to point out that Magic Mike was a huge hit and spawned, spawned a sequel, a very good sequel, actually. And Contagion was, a, Contagion was a big hit as well. Soderbergh may not have directed anyone to any Oscars uh, on the acting side, but he did direct Channing Tatum, Matthew McConaughey and Joe Manganiello to the MTV Movie Award for Best <laughs> On-Screen Transformation. <laughs> Whatever. That's a category. Who are the nominees? Try to look. Speaking of that, uh, Catherine Zeta-Jones. It's funny. Is so two things. When I was watching this, I was convinced that she was nominated. I actually thought she might have won for it. I was wrong on both counts. She wins for Chicago, whatever, a year or two later. Which I think she was robbed. I think she should have been nominated for a supporting actress. She's fantastic. And also, I have to admit, when I'm watching this movie, like I said, I've seen it twenty times. The whole time. I know Soderbergh got nominated for this and Brockovich in the same year, and I, I know the Oscars, you know, generally pretty well. The entire time, I'm thinking this one Best Picture, and then I'm reading the IMDb trivia afterwards, and it's something about, you know, whatever the trivia thing was about Gladiator or something, and I was like, fucking Gladiator, come on. I, I, I must have blocked it out of my brain for 20 years. I can't believe that still. I don't think that's aged very well. Um, I think I think the common, the consensus opinion is that Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon was probably the one that was robbed. I'm obviously on the traffic train myself. And at the time, I was just, I was the same as you, Oscar. Like, I think this is the first film I saw five times in the theater. And I would I would not stop talking about this movie. I, I yelled about it to anybody who would listen. I'm sure I made my, I drove my family crazy because I wouldn't stop talking about this movie all the way through the Oscars. Everybody's like, Gladiator's going to win. It's a big epic. It's a bigger hit. Traffic is too dark. And I was like, no, I, I, I still was altruistic in those days. Like, no, the best movie's going to win. Best movies win best picture. No, of course, Gladiator won. Do we care about Gladiator? I didn't really care about it then. I certainly don't care about it now. <laughs>
I feel like culturally it's still relevant. A lot of a lot of you know mainstream people like it. It's on TNT and stuff. LeBron James named his kid Maximus. You know, <laughs> shit like I think that. it's still a I think it's a college dorm movie still. Probably. Yeah, exactly. And it's entertaining. I rewatched it a couple of years ago. It, it's fine. It's a fine movie. Not in our dorm. In Brian and in Brian and my dorm, we were a, <laughs> we were a traffic dorm. I'm just saying that right. Two here. traffics. An Ocean's Eleven, a limey poster. I, I have the evidence that, yeah. <laughs> so you're talking about the cast, and I think that's significant. I think Steven Soderbergh is an underrated actor's director, and he's also underrated in being able to activate movie stars. I think he's one of the great movie star directors, and that's why the Ocean series works so well. Here he's working with the aforementioned Catherine Zeta-Jones, Benicio Del Toro, who I certainly wouldn't have called a movie star at the time, but he was a great character actor. We obviously all knew him from... Uh, probably usual suspects amongst other things. When I saw him in this movie, it was just it was a revelation. It's like, oh my god! I mean, this launched his stardom, right? This made him an A list. Yeah, absolutely. Right? I mean, obviously, you win the Oscar. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, and it was he was another one of those guys like Julia Roberts, where when this movie came out, they're like, okay, give him the Oscar right now. Like, it's also kind of his story. You know, it, it it starts with him, it ends with him. The, the emotional climax. Michael Douglas and his daughter have their thing, which is a little. You know, if you if you do want to criticize it for being emotional and manipulative, that is the story that is that way. Whereas Benicio's is. So just like beautifully done and subtle and you like baseball, like that whole scene and then the payoff at the end is just, it, it's such a good note to end he, This on. sounds like a horrible cliche, but he is the he is the emotional core of the movie. He said the movie starts with him, it ends with him. I actually broke it down when I was watching this afternoon, scene by scene. We got three timelines going on here, obviously, right? We got the quote-unquote Mexico timeline, the sort of Cincinnati, Washington, D.C. timeline, and then the kind of San Diego-ish timeline. 18 sequences taking place in the blue timeline, the Cincinnati, Washington, D.C. timeline. We have 18 sequences taking place in the white timeline, the San Diego timeline, but we only have 11 sequences taking place in the Mexico timeline. It has the least amount of screen time of the three timelines, which I think is significant, and I think it it actually speaks even more towards how much of an impact Benicio makes considering he has so much, his story has so much less screen time. I mean, he, he veers over into San Diego, you know, like he has San Diego scenes and I'm counting those as San Diego scenes. I, I would say that makes sense. And like the emotional core thing obviously makes sense too. But of all the the lead characters in this movie, he's the one without really any character growth because he's sort of good the entire he's time. He's the hero, right? yeah. Like he, he doesn't see much, uh, he sees the world as it is the whole time and he, he knows what he's doing, so he doesn't have to change. But I mean, his whole plan's sort of hidden from us a little bit. The other thing is those other two, the San Diego and the DC, have sort of two stories within them. It's Michael Douglas and his daughter's story and then Catherine Zeta-Jones and Don Cheadle, Luis Guzman, which is to me like every single like where was their spinoff man where's the prequel with with ray and monty Monty, montel gordon and uh, ray castro i I was just thinking about how a how much i love those guys and b how much overlap there is between the soderbergh repertory players and the paul thomas anderson repertory players right like these fucking these cool character actors who were just rocking and rolling in the late 90s and doing all these cool movies you know doing boogie nights and then two years later doing magnolia and then a year later doing traffic like and then a year later doing oceans 11 like what a what a great time to be a character what a great time to be don Cheadle! yeah <laughs> it's always a great time to be don Cheadle, man come on <laughs> fair enough good point it's never a bad time um and then luis guzman who's the who's the most household name character actor who plays himself in magnolia <laughs> lest we forget is so goddamn funny and so charming in this movie and he also his death is one of the emotional i want to say high points is the wrong word it's one of the most emotional moments of the film like you have so, you get so invested in these two guys and they spend so much time cracking wise and playing grab ass and 
and busting each other's balls that you forget they're also you know best friends and partners and when when guzman goes it's it's a really big deal and it activates Cheadle in a really interesting way that's a thing that i I really appreciated this time um is Cheadle's sort of finale where he you know goes in and busts up the the gets whatever plants the bug and then he goes away and his little smile at the end you almost can picture him like you know I don't want to be too cheesy, but it's like, this is for Ray, you know, like we, we got him, Ray, or whatever. And like, he goes off. Yeah. Um, that, that's it. That's a, yeah, it's a great conclusion to his story. Yeah. He's going to keep fighting the good fight. Well, even if it's futile, he's, he's still going to keep fighting because that's what he does. Speaking of the cast, I want to give some love to creepy Dennis Quaid. Oh yeah. Who's fantastic. And to uh, unsung hero, Clifton Collins. Yeah. Clifton Collins Jr. Who we're well versed in, you know, he's a great part of Rules of Attraction. One of our favorites back in the day. You know, just Scott Pilgrim. Scott Pilgrim, of Shows course. up in Scott Pilgrim in a wonderful cameo. Clifton Collins Jr. is another one of those. He's another one of those fun, cool, you know, character actors um, who, po- who uh, you know, every time he pops up, I'm, I'm always excited to see him. And this is certainly my first exposure to him. And I also, in my research, I was reminded of the fact that there's a great commentary track for this movie, by the way. If anybody owns this movie on the Criterion Blu-ray, a wonderful commentary track with Soderbergh and Steven Marioni, the editor. And I remember listening to it, and uh, they mentioned that the scene where... Benicio picks up Cl- Clifton Collins Jr. in San Diego, where he pips, where he picks up Frankie Flowers. That was not in the script. That was Benicio's idea. There was a whole other like elaborate thing where they were going to kidnap him, and Benicio's like, "Well, we know this character's gay. What if I just like go to a bar and pick him up?" And Soderbergh's like, "Yes, that's much better. That's much faster. Let's do it that way instead." So <laughs> that like, whole I got sequence. Some, yeah, I got some tight jeans. <laughs> Flash that ass. It'll be great. <laughs> I'm going to tape a condom to my uh, pack of Marlboro Reds. I, I have to say, uh, I, I agree. Like I said, the casting is amazing but to me the the one who steals the show who's just underrated i have no idea what the guy's even name is is general salazar that guy is phenomenal and his I don't, i've never noticed this or thought about this but his acting with his hands is amazing he does just like these great motions and he does i think also you're just like yeah his entrance like so <laughs> that guy's just amazing he is a cuban actor I mean, it looks like he was a heartthrob in his youth his name is thomas million he has 119 credits big de- big deal south of the border apparently i mean he, he's almost like, i would say like the villain of the movie if there is one in this movie like he the villain of the movie has, is hypocrisy bro <laughs> I mean, are you paying attention <laughs> and then um obviously we need to talk about douglas who is the I, you know we, we said benicio is the hero douglas i guess is the de facto star of the film although it's certainly an ensemble this movie had a really interesting trajectory as far as its casting went douglas actually was soderbergh's first choice he didn't like the script and he passed on it so then they got harrison ford interested harrison ford liked it he wanted to beef up that character a little bit so soderbergh and Harrison Ford actually worked together to add more with Stephen Gagan to add more scenes for Wakefield and to give that character a little more to do. Like give him a whip and give him a hat yeah, or something. Exactly. Like that. Yeah, give him give him a plane he could crash. He liked it and he was on board and he was really close to doing it. And I I couldn't find I couldn't find the reason that he dropped out. It just turns he just got he was just over it, dropped out, decided to do something else. Six days, seven nights came up and he really wanted to make them. Decided to go do a firewall or something. So anyway, <laughs> he so he dropped out and Michael Douglas and Harrison Ford, I mean, those guys are probably in my top five, the top five most important movie stars of of my lifetime. I mean, I adore both of them for very, very different reasons. So I think Douglas is great in this. I want to talk about him. But the sliding door scenario where we see this film with Harrison Ford and what that would have meant for Harrison Ford's career going forward, 
and what that would have potentially meant for the kinds of decisions he made. Maybe it would have been a total fluke. Maybe it would have been it would have had nothing to do with the rest of his career. Maybe he would have gone straight to six days, seven nights out of that after that or whatever. But wouldn't you wouldn't you just like to see that version of this film? I I can I can kind of picture it and I kind of like it. Yeah, I can. To me, there's two things. One is that Michael Douglas just so looks the part, and maybe it's because he was in the American President or whatever. But he just looks exactly like a sort of uh, a cabinet official for 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 a White House. You know, he looks kind of like a sleazeball, but he looks highly intelligent. And I just don't know that Harrison Ford has that face. Harrison Ford looks like the president in Air Force One. He looks like a good moral guy. Whereas the Michael Douglas, like, you sort of question him. Is he a good guy? Is he a son of a bitch husband and father? Like, Yeah, and, and also Michael Douglas is great in this movie at sort of giving you the, the impression that he's not sure of himself right, at all right. in this stuff, that he that he doesn't believe in it even from the beginning or he's not sure what the fuck he's supposed to do. <laughs> and and I'm, not, I'm not sure Harrison Ford would have given off that vibe it would have been more you know, Harrison good, Ford has never questioned anything he's ever done <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah Harrison Ford doesn't exude insecurity I suppose <laughs> exactly the, um, yeah. the, the one thing I did have to, my only my only note for Steven Soderbergh is the last speech by Michael Douglas at the White House briefing room where he's going to introduce himself is very painful to watch it, which obviously that was intentional and they're doing you know what they're doing and it's, it's, it's fine but it's such a tough watch you're like oh man like this is just painful and it's it's long it goes on so much longer than you expect it to it's like a probably three minute speech that is inconsequential you don't care about and all you want to do is get to the fact that he's going to walk out and then also that by the fact that then he just walks out and just leaves the White House grounds, gets in a cab, and it's like, take me to the airport. Like, you got a briefcase, dude? You got a jacket? Like, <laughs> he made, he made it his mind. not any clothes to Washington? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he, he doesn't no. just walk out of the White House. He walks out the front door of the White <laughs> yeah. House. Into a cab. Logan Airport. <laughs> yeah, that's an, interesting, that's an interesting scene. I was actually reading um, a couple of the uh, reviews from 2000. I think it was from Peter Travers, or from Rolling Stone, who was writing about the fact that that speech specifically... If you notice, there's like a moment at the end of that speech where I think the last thing he says, I don't know how you declare war on your own family. And it feels like he's going to say something else. And I don't know if he did say something else and Soderbergh cut it short or if it was always intended for him to just say that and walk out. But it's such an interesting moment. I remember in 2000 being 18 years old or whatever and seeing in the theater and thinking to myself, like, we needed like one more button. I needed one more button on there. I needed him to say one more thing, like something conclusive. But it was the perfect decision to have him do that. Because like you said, he's already made up his mind. And the fact that there is no right answer to this question is kind of the point of the movie, right? There's nothing a speech is going to be able to solve. Is that I think as moviegoers, you're expected to hear a little more preachiness, a little more proselytizing there. And it just shows the great restraint they had in not making this movie preachy at all to cut that speech short and not have him go off on anything or get into the nuance of it. I, I think it's pretty perfect yeah despite how uh how cr- cringy it can be just <laughs> god he really bombs that speech <laughs> so I just, i'm sorry i i only i only interrupt because i need to uh, correct myself it was not peter travers it was roger ebert who said this i'll quote the movie is powerful precisely because it doesn't preach it is so restrained that at one moment the judge's final speech i wanted one more sentence making a point but the movie lets us supply that thought for ourselves that's from roger ebert's review the other just talking about sort of editing and editing people you know cutting them a little bit i noticed um the first time Catherine zeta jones is meeting carl at the prison it starts in the middle of clearly a scene that was filmed she's she's already crying and and he says how's david and she's like how's david like you know that they filmed whatever five pages of dialogue before that and then he just starts the scene right there and she's already at her like emotional peak right there 
And it's just, it, it's that type of editing that I love so much. Like you, you don't need to, be, you don't need to see her sit down and say, hi, I, or like go through the prison or whatever. Like th- th- that's what Soderbergh is so good at just cutting to the meat of it and just getting you, here's the point of this scene. Yeah. Well, the first cut was almost an hour longer than the finished product. Right, Matt? And I don't think there's been no director's cut or any extended cut of any kind. right? No, for as experimental and as kind of playful as Soderbergh is, he doesn't really do director's cuts. I can't think of a single one, honestly. Well, I mean, Che. <laughs> just, <laughs> I mean, there's a ver- yeah, there's a ver- but it's, I don't think I don't think there's anything added. I think you just watch both versions back to back. I mean, it's either two movies or it's one movie, but I don't think there's like added material. I'm just saying we never we never got the the theatrical cut of Che. I saw it in the theater. I saw I saw the whole like no, no, four I'm, hour I'm, version I'm, in the theater. I, yeah, I'm saying he should have cut it. Oh oh oh, I see. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but now, yeah, but now when you access Che, I think you, you either do one or the other. You do the Argentine or you do the the or Gorilla. But yeah, I mean that's a, that's a, this is a good pivot into um, the editorial of it all because this movie is of course uh, cut by the great Stephen Marioni. Also cut Swingers a couple years earlier. Cut Go the year before this. I believe this is the first time that he and Soderbergh worked together. They would they would make many films together. At this point, Soderbergh is really in an interesting place. He's just coming off of Out of Sight, which was shot, uh, which was cut by Ann V. Coates, who is one of the three most important picture editors of all time. And then Sarah Flack, who uh, cut The Limey. She's Sofia Coppola's uh, editing partner now. So he's coming off of these re- two really interesting, really experimental uh, editorial exercises. You know, of course, everybody always goes back to the hotel bar scene in Out of Sight. I don't think I've ever taken an editing class that did not show that scene on the very first day of class for uh, for a very good reason. And so you you go back and you watch that scene again, and you're just, you're like watching Soderbergh discover, he and Andy Coates discover something in real time. You're just like, because it's not, it's not scripted that way. I don't think it was ever intended that way. There's literally fine it in the editing room and then he takes that scene and he basically extrapolates an entire feature film out of it because that's how i look at the limey the structure of the limey is the the uh, hotel bar scene from from out of sight over a 90 minute period and so then he takes those two ideas and his experience with aaron brockovich and he takes it into traffic and works with with the great stephen marioni and the way this movie deals with like elliptical edits the way that it deals with these different timelines the way that it sort of uh, reconciles the idea of this song so-called hyperlink narrative aesthetic I think it's really interesting like it's just it's so sophisticated and I think we we undervalue it now because it created something that has been so completely run into the ground and undermined it it's, it's kind of like all the shit that came that came after Pulp Fiction right all the Pulp Fiction copycats in their own way kind of devalued Pulp Fiction whereas I think so many of the traffic copycats from an editorial standpoint completely devalued traffic and there were some great ones you <laughs> Siriana <know. coughs> Siriana yeah exactly which is which is gagging cribbing from a film I that, do he, this. that he yeah, yeah. oh maybe you can't maybe it takes a little more than that. In, in your Ritu starts doing this around the same time as well right you can kind of look at Amaro's films like Amaro's Peros or 21 Grams as being cut from the same cloth, even though they're basically contemporaneous. But I think so much of it has to do with the cutting patterns, which are just extraordinary. Yeah. And that, that's what I was, you know, in, in preparing for this, I was thinking about my favorite multi-threaded or, you know, hyperlink, as you called it, movies. And I think this is, I don't want to say it's my favorite. Well, it, it might be my favorite movie of all these. Like there's Magnolia and obviously Tarantino does it, you know, with Pulp Fiction or whatever, uh, Reservoir Dogs. I, but I think that this style because it's like, again, like the, the sort of realism and the just presenting the world as it is without message. That's why I love this so much that like these are 
not connected in a way that like, oh, it turns out this was the killer and like, you know, there's a twist ending or anything. It's just like, these are all the same people affected by the same like enormous geopolitical movements and sort of economic movements and that they're not like directly affecting each other, even though there are, you know, Catherine Zeta and Benicio cross paths at one time or Frankie Flores comes up in, you know, the two different stories. Like there are little connections, but I just love this style where it's so much more subtle and, you know, sort of respects the audience. My, my favorite version of these hyperlink movies. Do you guys like them crossing each other in the street? I feel like that's just not necessary. Yeah. And it's kind of it's kind of cheeky in a way that the rest of the movie isn't. That's an interesting that's an interesting question. I, I do like it, but I certainly can entertain the idea that it's just a little on the nose, perhaps. I mean, at the time, because this was so new to me as an 18 year old kid, I remember kind of needing those sorts of things. Like I needed yes, that connective same. tissue, you know, like I needed them crossing path and it was still just elliptical enough that I it was still it still felt revolutionary to me at the time but I liked the idea that the camera would be watching Catherine Zeta-Jones going by in her minivan and then it would keep moving and then it would see Benicio walking this way you know in San Diego I'm into it but I'm certainly open to discussing the idea that it's a, it's a little too as you say cheeky perhaps it's a feat of, of editing and, and what they did that these movies like the timelines in these movies they don't necessarily even have to be taking place at the same time or take place over the same amount of time, right? Like you could see Michael Douglas's story taking place over a year and a half, right? Or or a year. We're not really sure about how long e any of these timelines take. And so it's not really necessary that they take place in the same time, but it, it's cut in a way where it's just seamless and you're not even thinking about it. Yeah, that, that's a good point, Oscar. You know, usually I, I, I look to poke holes, especially when there's trials involved, like Carlos Ayala, or Carl Ayala has the trial. They're already getting to witnesses, like, that trial would reasonably take, from the time they arrest him to the time he goes to trial, nine months, 12 months. Like, it would take a very long time for a giant federal prosecution. Years, exactly, yeah. exactly. But in this movie, like, there's such authenticity across the board, like the courtrooms. He does, the, the first Supreme Court, uh, the whatever, the Ohio Supreme Court with Michael Douglas looks like probably the real Ohio State Supreme Court and then all the other ones. They're just boring enough to They're be real, boring right? municipal yeah, buildings, yeah. exactly. It's not It's not a few good men with like this like cinematic courtroom, you know, it, it's, it's, it looks like the real deal. Like the, the Insider, I think that was the last time I talked to you guys, like another movie in this style. All right, we get it, you like the Insider, <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> it's just, it's these, you know, the, these white men that are good at their jobs. It's like my favorite thing to watch. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm glad you brought up uh, the, the idea of timelines and stuff and how this movie deals with time and how this movie uh, you know compresses time and expands time and how, you know how time can be elliptical and how, how time can dilate if you bring up christopher nolan again. Yeah, no, no. <laughs> no 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 i i, I, I won't use, i won't use the i don't i won't use the n-word on this particular podcast um so I, for the very first time I've, I've probably seen this movie 40 times in the last 20 years i've never noticed that albert finney mentions that it's going to be a one it's one month between when he starts the job and when he's expected to give the speech so for douglas's timeline it is exactly a month everything else can potentially be expanding backwards or forwards. The pivotal scene of the film for me, like the scene where I literally remember having like a religious experience in the theater, and the scene that I go back to, you know, multiple times a year on YouTube or whatever, and the scene that uh, co corresponds to the most important track on Cliff Martinez's soundtrack, which we can talk about as well, occurs just about past the halfway point of the movie, and the very first thing you see is Catherine Zeta-Jones. So Lena, so she's, she's sitting at home, and she's thinking back to talking to Carl in the in so you mentioned that there was something going on in that scene that we didn't see something felt cut out of there right so now we see the material that exists from there and it's occurring in her memory right 
So she's thinking about being in the jail with Carl. She's also thinking about uh, Dennis Quaid creepily putting his hands on her and leaning over her when she tells him what he does for a living. So you're seeing her memory kind of go in two different directions. And then we just go back, insert the missing information, because now it means more to us than it would have then. And then she's able to use that information to go and discover all the different uh, drug cartel, you know, contact <laughs> contact information. Um, and then we go from there to um, Douglas in the helicopter into them. And now he's in the Mexico timeline. And now he the comes down. Shot. Exactly. And Cliff Martinez is just fucking, he's just firing on all cylinders, right? And it's just this just incredible, overwhelming, mono, ambient, just wash. And I just had never heard anything like it at the time. And I remember watching that shot over the top of Mexico City and then more importantly, watching the helicopter land on top of Soderbergh's camera. And apparently the grips had built basically like a Lazy Susan turntable on the ground on this helicopter platform. And if you watch, he's looking upside down. And then as the as the helicopter lands on top of him, he spins like 180 degrees so that he can land on the nose of the helicopter. I, I couldn't put a word to it at the time because I was just too young and naive. Now I feel like I can. That's the moment where Soderbergh proves to me that he is a master of what's possibly the most difficult thing for a filmmaker to really, really master, and that's tone. That's something you can't teach. That's something that the Coen brothers may potentially be the greatest purveyors of uh, in their generation of filmmakers. I think Soderbergh's always been a master of it. You can't teach filmmakers how to establish tone. It's too intangible. There's too many different things going on. It's such an alchemic combination of things. And in that moment, in that sequence with Cliff Martinez's music and Soderbergh and Mirioni's editing decisions, I'm just like, this movie has a fucking personality. And I know exactly the world I'm living in. And I know exactly how it's delivering this information to me. And you are proving to me that you have decided on a tone for this and you have established it. Congratulations, Steven Soderbergh. You're my guy (laughs) from here on out. And so that will always be the scene that I go back to. And um, I was looking on my iTunes earlier and Helicopter, the track from from that, uh, from Cliff Martinez's soundtrack, has been one of like my top five most replayed tracks in my iTunes since 2000. (laughs) So over the last 20 years, it's never fallen out of the top 10 most most replayed. Yeah, yeah, that's something I can can admit to you guys in confidence. So let let me ask you a question, speaking of Cliff Martinez's score is, should there be a on-screen credit at the end that says this is Brian Eno's track not Cliff Martinez's because to me that is the best score the the best part of the score okay but it's not part of the score right (laughs) so I feel like I feel like he gets a you know he's 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 getting credit for something that not is not his work yeah fair that's an ascent by Brian Eno fair enough because it's an extraordinarily effective final it well and it's also what's so funny to me is that it's like um it it matches the tone of the rest of the movie so that's what I say he's getting credit for because you would never know the person who's composed 98 percent of the score is actually somebody else doing the end and it's almost like you guys mentioned uh interstellar that like they're they're copying the philip glass koanaskazi it's like just just do this like just do this yourself Cliff Martin, it's just like, if you like this ascent so much, just like rip it off and put your own track at the end. Okay, this like. this is interesting. I want to argue about this. This is good. So um, to me, <laughs> to me, when you find a track like that and it is so perfect and you're just going to be trying to copy and rip it off, why rip it off? Why not just use it, right? Like if an ascent by Brian Eno is, is the perfect tone, why try to match it? Why not just use it? I, the other example I would give you is the um, Max Richter on the Nature of Daylight 
as the sort of like bookends in Arrival, right? Because it's so good and it's so fantastic and it's so perfect that Johan Johansson was just like, I can't do any better than that. We got to use it. It's just, <laughs> it's, it's too perfect. So to me, this is Soderbergh and Cliff Martinez saying this, this is it. This is exactly what we want to say. And, it's, and again, it's, it's an establishment or it's a reinforming the, uh, the tone that they have now established. And, and I'm, I'm okay with it personally, but I agree. I think we should give Brian, Brian, you know, the, the credit where it's due because it is his track and it's important that we credit him properly. Do you think that happens because that they just chose that for the temp soundtrack? They were like, fuck it, we just gotta keep it. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> they forgot to take it out. Oh, yeah. I mean, that would be the pes- that would be the pessimistic uh, <laughs> view of it for sure. <laughs> it, you know, it's interesting. I was just looking, so it was not nominated for score, best original score. Crouching Tiger won. Shock a lot was nominated. Gladiator, Hans Zimmer. Milena by Igno Marconi, and then Patriot by John Williams. We all remember that, the Patriot score. Oh like, give me God. a fucking break, dude. <laughs> John Williams, 74th Oscar nomination. John Williams, the Meryl Streep of the, uh, of the original song. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, just slot him in. He did something this year, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I don't remember the uh, Chocolat score. Gotta be honest. I don't remember Chuck a lot. I mean, I've seen it, but who gives a shit? So I think it's important to, to we're, since we're talking about Cliff Martinez, Cliff Martinez and Steven Soderbergh have made 10 films together now. The Cliff Martinez sort of like house style, like it's really been interesting to see him emerge over the course of, you know, particularly the last decade or so as he started working with Nicholas Winding Refn and other, and, you know, Spring Breakers and, and stuff like this. Like it's it's been interesting to see him really establish his very specific style, considering that he's he came up with Soderbergh. Sex, Lies, and Videotape is his first credit. You know, he was the drummer for Red Hot Chili Peppers. He, he owes his film career to Steven Soderbergh in, uh, in a number of ways. And they've, they've been very faithful to each other. He did both seasons of The Nick, for example. I think they've really informed each other in interesting ways over the course of their parallel careers. So I, I am a, a huge fanboy of Solaris. I will go to bat for the Soderbergh Solaris. And that score is probably in my top 10. I would say no question it's in my top 10 favorite scores. I love the Solaris soundtrack. It's a big reason why I actually love the movie. I mean, I would say, what, a third of the movie is just the planet and the score and like no dialogue, those, no the, people on screen. steel drums, man. The steel drums just, oh, man, it's what happiness sounds like. Uh, yeah, I, you and I have always been big Solaris defenders. That That's probably in my top five Soderberghs for sure. Probably probably Limey, Traffic, Out of Sight, Solaris, and then Sex Lies. That would be probably my top five. And then Ocean's five. 13. I, well, I am somebody who would go to bat. I, I am one of those assholes who says that Ocean's 12 is the best of the Ocean's movies, but that's uh-huh. a hot take we can talk about on a different day. <laughs> Uh, it's a it's a Knutson take. I buy it. The, the second time he cast Julia Roberts as Julia Roberts in his career, <laughs> it, full frontal, she's basically Julia Roberts. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Matt, you mentioned traffic's in your top ten of all time. Where in the top ten is it right now? You know, I haven't ranked them, but Steven Soderbergh is the only filmmaker who has two films in my top ten: The Limey and Traffic. Just a couple more little notes that I have here. Uh, Viola Davis, of course, pops up. Yes. In a really great scene, she had been in Out of Sight already. Of course, Soderbergh was on the Viola Davis train very early because he's a great. He's he's obviously a great judge. She was already a legend on this on the stage, of course. Let's mention Topher Grace in a role perfectly suited for Topher Grace. I was going to say, that's his film debut. He's only been on The 70s Show. This is his first movie. Oh, is that right? I think so. He's he's secretly like a, a Soderbergh repertory player because of the Oceans movies, right? I don't think he pops up in 13, unfortunately. Did you guys notice the character uh, Spastic Jack popping up over the course of the film? I knew that because you and I talked about it 20 years ago when okay. we watched it at 2 in the morning, probably. <laughs> okay. For anybody who, did, who hasn't noticed, there's this character, the character that they end up using to transport the cocaine that's like high 
impact pressure molded. The character is called Spastic Jack, and there's a lot of really fun. Occasionally, like a, a truck will go by that has a Spastic Jack, you know, advertisement on it or whatever. They'll see like a billboard with it. I just, I think all that stuff is really cute. Ingmar Bergman called this film quote amazing. Just something that came out of my research. <laughs> cool. Six out of twenty people found this interesting. I, <laughs> I, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm in the pocket, obviously, but yeah, and and I guess we all are to a certain extent, but. I just think this is a film that needs to be like revisited and celebrated. Soderbergh was on a podcast recently talking about Let Them All Talk, and uh, he had some interesting insights into how the film was made and seemed to still have affection for it. So I would love to know where this sits for him in terms of the films he's most proud of, because it's certainly one of the most ambitious and most, I think, artistically successful films in his oeuvre. It, it, it's all, the, the last thing I'll say, and just because I'm looking at it, is that um, the poster is great, too. It's got, like, very interesting-looking faces, Benicio, Catherine Zeta-Jones, and then the, like, random Vietnam, you know, Oliver Stone... Uh, uh, hands up in the air, you know, shot on the cover. I think that this is, it's probably, like I said, it's in my top 10 somewhere. Um, it's also like, can we agree that this is the greatest drug movie of all time? Like this has got to be, I, I think it's better than Blow or Scarface or, I mean, it's a broad category. Like is Goodfellas a drug movie? Is French Connection a drug movie? I don't know. But to me, I think that this is the best movie about drugs. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess I haven't thought about it. it yeah. If French Connection is interesting. Goodfellas is interesting. I am a big Sicario guy, but... Sicario's uh, good. Pineapple Express. <laughs> it's definitely better than Blow. I mean, Blow is not, not my favorite, so... Narc. I know Knudsen's a big narc guy. <laughs> I am a big narc guy. That's another, that's another Cliff Martinez score, as a matter of fact, so thank you for bringing it full circle. Uh, yes, I do love narc. Buster Rhymes. No, I mean, I, I, don't think, I don't think anything comes close to this, right? This is, this is definitely the best, quote-unquote, drug movie with a bullet. I guess we don't really just make these kinds of drug movies anymore, right? Because we talked about films like Sicario or whatever, like whatever is taken up the mantle from this type of film. It zero, zero, zero is an interesting connection, even though that's a TV show. Sicario is the last big sort of drug movie that's not sort of a Hollywoody action sensationalist type thing. So yeah, movies that take sort of a sobering view of it, I think we'll probably see more yeah. politically based opioid pharmacy type drug movies more so than something like this. Because, you know, again, the point remains, this is a movie about the futility of the war on drugs and we're all sort of there now so this movie doesn't really need to get made in that way right people if this movie was made now people would be like yeah we know we get it <laughs> yeah <laughs> all right matt uh if you don't have anything else um any any final thoughts from our special guest brian everybody likes baseball for the kids to play so it's safe yeah you, you, brian's been texting me uh yeah luis luis guzman <laughs> and benicio del toro quotes all week long <laughs> i can offer you a joke when when they arrive they're wet and wild when they leave they take your house and your car i just like to think that luis guzman doesn't know the context of any movie he's in he just shows up as himself he's like is this a drama is this a period piece whatever he's just louise i think that's why guys like paul thomas anderson and soderbergh just gravitated to him and started using him so much because he's just such a he's just such an interesting force on camera like yeah he can be he can be comedic he can be completely off the cuff he can be completely candid like he, he nothing ever feels staged nothing there's you don't see any acting let's put it that way he's also on cameo by the way if you guys want to get a cameo with louise guzman i think it's oh how much is he i i think it's reasonable i'm thinking like 35 bucks or something i think you can oh, get that's it. Sounds like a worthwhile investment. (laughs) (laughs) On Christmas Day, we all email cameos for each other. (laughs) All right, Matt, you want to call some people to action here? Uh, Thank you so much all for listening. If you haven't figured it out yet, we like movies, but we also like podcasting and want to continue doing it. If you like what you've heard, please consider rating, reviewing, and subscribing. 
Follow us on the socials at WLM Podcast. If you want to help us keep the lights on at WLMHQ, visit welikemovies.com and click on the donation link at the top. Spread the word. Tell your friends. Help us keep the conversation going. For Brian Barini, Oscar Dahl, I'm Matt Knudsen, and the degree of difficulty on this episode was... I'm going to give it two out of two surveillance van lemonades. That's a fun scene. That's a cute scene. I forgot get this shit to the lab. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta get this shit analyzed, bro. Yeah.